What is up, Brad fans? How you doing? How you living? Spaced out, vaccinated, remaining vigilant, riding out third waves if you happen to be in certain locations, wherever you are, I am glad that you are here with me today for this episode because, listen, we always bring you great episodes here on Too Brad For You, but I am especially excited about this episode. I believe it is especially great because I was joined by a senior staff writer at Vice, Shayla Love. She covers psychology, health, science, um, and she's a really, really great writer. I've been following her, her work uh, for a while um, because we have overlapping interests. Um, and under her broad um, beat of psychology, health, the mind, she covers psychedelics quite extensively. Um, like I said, this is where I found her work uh, and became a big, big fan. And our conversation today was largely dominated, dominated by psychedelics because Shayla, she's covering a really important angle um, among many angles, but she's covering a really important angle of the psychedelic renaissance, whatever you want to call it. Um, and that is commodification, commercialization of the psychedelic therapy. She's been writing about the ongoing race to patent elements of this treatment, um, some of the differences between for-profit and non-profit approaches, where the middle ground exists, um, all topics that need to be considered if this treatment is going to be effective and available to the largest number of people. And it's something that I don't think a lot of people uh, realize. You know, um, she, like me, is optimistic about this, this treatment and this therapy, but takes a really great angle on understanding sort of this 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 how it's going to be rolled out for people like how is it going to be made available um and something that doesn't get covered a lot so um i absolutely love her approach to covering this topic and psychology and health in general i've started follow since since discovering her work on psychedelics i've started following it and i've read all of her stuff now um she explains a little bit her her process, her mentality on on how to cover these topics and bringing a human element. Uh, how does how do these things impact humans, society, that kind of thing? Um, so just to give you a flavor of some of the other stuff that she's recently published, um, she has articles titled "Why Your True Self Is an Illusion." We feel alone when we don't get enough time by ourselves and. Psychedelic therapy needs to confront the mystical or, here's another one, the people the suburbs were built for are gone. So, like I said, she's covering a number of different topics in this sort of psychology, health, science um, beat. Uh, you can follow her stuff, uh, follow her on Twitter rather, at Shayla Love. So, at Shayla two underscores love at Shayla, two underscores, love. Um, obviously, that will be linked in the show notes and on the website. Uh, and I, yeah, I highly recommend checking out her, her writing. She's a great writer and um, taking some really interesting angles on a lot of different topics. Uh, we mostly talked about psychedelics today. Um, we could have done another couple hours on a bunch of other topics, but I'm hoping to get Shayla back onto the show because, yeah, I just really enjoyed talking to her, um, and she's a great follow, great writer. 
that's all I have to say to introduce it without giving too much away. Um, so then, the regular business. Follow us at Too Bad For You. Uh, you can follow me at B Van Paradigm. Uh, both of those are good for Twitter and Instagram. Um, you can write the email a show. You can write the email a show. You can write the show an email. you at gmail.com. You can leave us a voice message. If you go to speakpipe.com slash you. you can also find all of these ways to get in touch with us uh, via our website, which is toobradforyou.wordpress.com. So please do reach out, send us a voice message, I will play it on the show, write me an email, I will read it on the show, send me a tweet, uh, tag me on an Instagram, that kind of thing. I will do my best to, to respond to all of those. And, and yeah, we would really like to see you guys, the audience, become a part of the show, uh, interact with us a little bit. That's what we're all about, having dialogue, having conversation. So without further delay here is my conversation with senior staff writer at vice shayla love so shayla thank you so much for you know joining our little show here it's uh it's a real pleasure to have you i've been following your you're writing for a while now since i myself started getting into reporting on some of the psychedelics I found your work. Uh, you've been doing some great stuff on there, but you've actually covered many a different topic. And I think maybe that's a good place to start is you can just sort of give us and the audience a little, um, you know, what your beat is, what you say your your topic interests are that you cover, that you write about, and sort of how you came to those, uh, came to find yourself covering those. Is it something you've always been interested in or was there something that sort of pushed you down this path? Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to be here and talk about psychedelics and and other other related topics. Um, I've always been interested in psychology, neuroscience, and mental health, and so I think my journey to psychedelics was kind of an obvious one, as the research in in that has just started to blossom and explode in the past few years. Um, I'm interested both in sort of understanding how mental health disorders work and the different experiences that people can have and how the brain works and also kind of practical treatments for different kinds of distress that people can have. Um, and so that's, that's how I kind of broadly define my beats. And then within that, it can go in a lot of different directions. Um, so for example, that includes basically all of the psychedelics fields because people are exploring whether or not psychedelics can teach us anything fundamental about the brain. Also, it's being explored as a treatment for you know, depression, eating disorders, addiction, et cetera. But it can also be things like um, one of my favorite recent stories that I wrote is about how talking to yourself in the third person can help with emotional regulation. Uh, so saying to myself, like, Shayla, it's okay, Shayla, you can, you know, you can do it, like sort of coaching yourself in the third person, and this connection between language and our emotions. Um, it can also, you know, this, this beat can even reach so far as I wrote a story about Bunny, the viral TikTok dog, <laughs> um, who seems to be able to communicate through these buttons that that she can push, you know, like, Bunny right, wants yeah. to go outside, Bunny needs to poop. Um, but to me, that was a that was a story about again, kind of like linguistics and what what are the limits of animal communication and why is it that humans have been trying to talk to animals for so long? There's this really 
a long history of people trying to teach animals how to speak English and over-interpreting their responses or under-interpreting their responses. So sometimes I look at my work and I'm like, whoa, this is all over the place. Like, what am I even doing? But I think when it, when it comes down to it, it's just about the varieties of, of human experience and how we're trying to grapple with it. And, and that can sort of come out in, in a whole bunch of ways. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So I think I may have maybe mentioned this to you in an email when we were going back and forth. But I was this question I kind of have is like, so when you did journalism school, if I'm correct, right? I did. So you yeah. kind of always consider yourself a journalist, I'm sure. But do you consider yourself a science journalist or someone who uh, is a journalist that just fell into covering science topics? Or was it sort of in the beginning, you kind of always had this interest in psychology and maybe some of the more science specific topics? Yeah, so I think the best way to answer that is like to tell you a bit about my family, which is that uh, everybody in my family is a scientist. Uh, so my parents uh, both do x-ray crystallography, which is when you shoot x-rays through proteins to try to determine their structure. Um, my aunt and uncle are both geologists, my grandparents on my mom's side, microbiologists. Um, so growing up, I come from a really scientific mm -hmm. background in the sense that like the games we played or like the Christmas presents I got were like <laughs> microscopes or like, you know, like uh, my aunt gave me this huge slab of limestone and you had to like carve out this fossil that was deep buried inside of it. Um, right. And so from that background, I would say I always had an interest in science, but science is very different than health, for example, mm -hmm. or science mm -hmm. is really different than psychology. And I think to me, there was always kind of this question of like, okay, there, there's a scientific way to the, to look at the world, but why, you know, why is that? Or what does it mean about my everyday experience? And my parents' job is very, you know, it's like looking at the building blocks of life. It's like on the protein level, what do things look like deep, deep, deep down? Um, and I think I always had kind of an interest in the philosophical side of that question. Like, so what does that mean about life if that's what life is made up of? So I think the combination of that interest of mine plus being really engulfed around science from the very beginning of my life led to this interest. Um, I did do just like a general journalism degree for my undergrad. Then I did do a master's in science journalism, which was more focused on like scientific topics and gaining expertise in reading studies and things like that. Um, but I think those interests were always present with me from the from the beginning. Mm -hmm. So what do you what does your family think of the career that you found? Is there a little like, oh, you, you should have been you should be in the lab like the rest of us? Or <laughs> do they kind of view it as like, hey, this is great. People, we need people to sort of interpret work and, and bring science to a to a wider audience or something like that. Yeah, I think they think it's great. And again, something like I said, science is really different than health in the sense. And it's also very different from journalism in that um, at my parents level and a lot of scientists who reach sort of like the level of PhD and practicing in the lab. It's so specific. You know, you just like you drill down deeper and deeper until you're doing something very, very specific. Uh, and what I do is very general. So like this week, um, I'm working on a story about the modern stoicism movement and how people are using it sort of as a mental health tool. And so I'm reading Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius and Seneca. Um, last week I was really into this psychedelic patent story. So I was reading the history of when uh, there was this big Supreme Court case about patenting genes 
And so I think that like, in that sense, my parents are sort of mystified by what I do because <laughs> <laughs> it's not like I'm going deep into one thing and then I'll stay there for, you know, for 30 years, which is what they've done. And so they think it's cool, but also they're like, how can you jump from thing to thing to thing to thing? Mm -hmm. Um, and I think there is a through line for me, but for them, it's, it's so in that way, it's very opposite of what they do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to get to the, some of the specific, you know, psychedelic stuff in a, uh, in a bit, but if you don't mind, I enjoy these kind of conversations about, you know, science, science reporting, this kind of thing in general, because I feel like, you know, for me, it was kind of the same thing. I did a PhD in biology, um, you know, studying a, a parasite that lives in the liver, you know, and I, I know a lot about that parasite and it was really fascinating. It can, mm -hmm. it can control the minds of ants and it's one of the weird ones that's actually quite cool, you know, but you get so focused on just these minutia of this thing. And yeah, that's what led me to be doing now freelance science writing and stuff was that I realized I much prefer to like, listen to what other people are doing and I have so many interests in all of these different topics. Um, I want to talk about that and, you know, learn more about that rather than go so deep into this one thing. Um, and I, but I mean, still, like you said, there's a through line through your stuff. There's connections between all these things. I think that's one of the fascinating things that we get to do in this line of work is find those weird connections, which is also, you know, what scientists do. They, look mm -hmm. at you know the big discoveries come from different fields and stuff but one of the things that i think you said that kind of you know stuck with me is um you know what does it mean you know we're looking at the building blocks of life but what does that mean for life and there's this personal edge to science that i think i feel a lot of times um science programming or science writing or something fails to grasp i mean psychology people tend to get that connection and health. But like you said, those are, those are different than science, but there, it, you know, there is a personal nature to it, not just for the scientists that, you know, devote their lives to this, but it affects everybody's life. You know, what proteins we're all made of proteins, all of these things. So finding a way to sort of personalize it and really make those connections, I think is important. Um, and, you know, especially in the situation that we now all find ourselves in, maybe people with a little more understanding of science, a little more you know, respect is maybe a bit condescending of the word, but, you know, um, maybe, you know what I mean, maybe that, you know, that's a good thing. And yeah, it's just my opinion. And I guess I've rambled on a little bit at you, <laughs> but I don't know what your thoughts are on any of no, that. I, I totally agree. I mean, I think one thing with the pandemic is, I don't know, I sort of see it in two directions. Like, especially in the US, um, it, you know, in, in some arenas, I feel that people are so grateful at the, about the vaccines being available and how they were developed. Um, you know, I hesitate, I hesitate to say so quickly because they were developed upon decades of years right, of research yeah. on mRNA. Um, but the fact that we have them feels miraculous. I myself am now officially fully vaccinated as of like a week ago. And it's like a whole, you know, my whole world is open back up to me. So in one right. sense, I feel like people got to see how science works and how science can tackle a problem. And it can, you know, it can really solve problems that are affecting everybody around the planet. On the other end, um, I worry that, you know, science is, it, science is a method. It's not a thing, right? So 
people sort of the curtain being drawn back and people seeing how iterative science is and and all of the mistakes and stumbling moments that it has right in the us we were told not to wear masks at first um there's been this huge difficulty of like uh accepting that the virus is transmitted mostly through air and not on surfaces that was something that was really hard to reverse once it was put out there because we do sometimes have this thing where like science says blank right mm -hmm, and like mm -hmm. uh so i think understanding it as like a method and a process is both really useful but also kind of scary because i think sometimes it can be held up as like this this truth when when it's not it's the it's the search for truth it's like the activity of looking for for truth or truths right i'm kind of a pluralist in that i think there can be many truths especially when it comes to things like mental health psychology the mm -hmm. areas that i tend to cover so um you know i'm comp i'm muddying the pot even more here but like it's all really it's all super complicated and i i find with my stories i try to make like there's often not an answer in the stories that i write about um, and I, I try to make uncertainty kind of like the star of the story in a sense, or like make the method or the search for truth or meaning the main ingredient to the story rather than like science has discovered X. It's more about like people trying to figure something out. Um, and I hope to communicate by doing that both sort of like the beauty and wonder of science, but also sort of like it's variability and iterative nature. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's actually like something that, again, gets lost in a lot of, you know, your typical science shows or science writing kind of thing is that, you know, like, as you put it, science says X, therefore, it's done. We know that. Um, but really, for me, you know, and, and what I was fascinated by why I got into it in science in general in the first place is exactly that, that sort of, you know, tip of the spear sort of thing where it's like, well, actually, you're at the forefront of we don't know, you know, what we don't know is greater than than what we do know. Uh, we we're piling all these bits of information all the time, but that always leads to another question, right? It always leads to another thing. So if you look at like, if you were going to like quantify it physically, like, you know, we know a speck of sand on the entire beach, you know, so that's mm -hmm. actually the greater thing is actually, you know, the curiosity of not knowing and, and what's next. And I think that that's something that I mean, yes, your work does a, a great job of that. You kind of bring people in with these, you know, questions of like, well, what does this mean? Well, let's explore it. And I've always thought that that was a great method to do things where you bring the audience along for the journey, right? And you're absolutely right. Science is a method. It's not a thing. Um, and I wonder if that's something that, yeah, maybe needs to be imparted more or sort of yeah let people understand more but it's especially when you get something like the pandemic where it's like you want to give people good advice right like that's that's the thing here is we're not talking about like oh hey we found a new star and what does that you know this is like something that really affects people's lives like the psychology and health reporting that you do so there's this kind of balance right like you want to come oh. from a place of authority and say this is this is what we should be doing. This is what we need to be doing as a, as a team, you know, let's pull together and wear masks or whatever. But then you also have to like balance that with like, this is what we know right now. It's going to change. Totally. And mm -hmm. I wonder, sometimes I think that that message was maybe not imparted enough uh, in terms of, and I'm not just, you know, I'm saying kind of in general, um, a couple episodes back, a couple months ago, I interviewed on this podcast, an anthropologist who had worked in the Ebola outbreak um, in Sierra Leone in, in West Africa. 
And she went in, you know, going to do a study on something else. Then Ebola happened and ended up doing her thesis on sort of health messaging and public health messaging. And one of the things that she really, you know, um, hit on and had found in her research and became really passionate about was, you know, giving the, the public credit, you know, to, un to actually understand and that people actually understand more of these sort of things about disease and things that affect their lives, you know, intimately. And so rather than trying to just give this blanket, you know, don't do this, don't do that. She's like, we need, you can explain it to people and the nuances, like, don't be afraid to go into the nuances of like, um, you know, this situation would be more dangerous than situate this situation rather than just saying, we can't have people doing X because, you know, it's going to be too, they're going to, they, they won't understand and they're going to put themselves at risk and all that stuff. So I thought that was really interesting. And I'm, yeah, I, I think it's one of the things that could be done better maybe. And I don't, yeah, I don't know. I guess I don't want yeah. to hear like criticizing <laughs> public health officials because it's a, obviously an incredibly difficult job, but yeah. yeah I think with mental health um, specifically, it's like emphasizing heterogeneity and like the incredible variability that comes with the different kinds of distress that people feel it, I think that's, it's, it's really necessary. And, you know, to talk specifically about psychedelics, something that I've always tried to do in my work is like, um, there's so many media stories about somebody taking psilocybin and their depression being cured. Somebody took ketamine and all, you know, like this, everything was cured. It was a magic fix. And, um, you know, I just know from talking with many, many people and from personal experience that these experiences are not super simple like that all the time. And if, if we're really going to open this up and have it be a more mainstream treatment, which is what everybody in the field is kind of like pushing for and what the research is suggesting we should at least try, uh, it's important to account for all that variety of experience. And like, even if it is helpful to someone, it could be really, it could be really difficult. Like, um, sometimes some of the reporting I see around psychedelics is like, it's, you know, I wrote this story, is this was back in 2018, I interviewed a lot of researchers about whether or not psychedelic researchers should have taken psychedelics themselves. A big question that comes up a lot, right? Yeah. A big question. And even, I feel like it's changed a lot even since 2018, because I feel like now you pretty much know that a lot of these people have taken psychedelics. Yeah. And, I think that, and I think that's fine. Mm -hmm. um, in the story, it was very interesting. Some people talked about how you couldn't really give informed consent if you hadn't had the experience yourself. And I think that's a, I, I think that's very Makes sense, fair, right? Yeah. Valid. Um, but Thomas, Thomas Metzinger, who's a philosopher in Germany, said something that I, that I think about all the time, which is that uh, we need to be wary of like this, the illusion of profundity or like the illusion of meaning, which is that sometimes these experiences can bring on powerful psych psychological feelings of insight. But the feeling of insight is not the same thing as insight. Uh, just like there was a recent study about psilocybin and creativity and people felt they had greater insight, but their ability to actually do creative tasks de decreased in the study. So, you know, we're getting to like this meta level of like people have experiences on psychedelics, but then they have feelings about their experience on psychedelics and how to tease those two things apart will be a really important question going forward. And also for those who have really profound, meaningful experiences, how can we hold, let's say I'm so happy for you, but then 
help the people who don't have those experiences and not just say like, well, you didn't do it right, or you weren't open enough, or, you know, you weren't like, you know, you didn't lean in or whatever. Like, I think if this yeah. is going to be, a, and I'm talking about this as like a mainstream treatment for, for mental health conditions, we need to be available for all kinds of experiences and not just the ones that are super meaningful and figure out like, can it still be helpful to people if that's the case, if they have a difficult experience in that, in those situations is the therapeutic relationship is that going to step in and, and, and be really important? Is the integration going to be really important? Um, so I, again, just going back to this point of like heterogeneity and like communicating that in almost every psychedelics article, I, I think is going to be really important going forward in terms of just like a science communication thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it almost feels like there needs to be like a disclaimer almost on every piece saying just that, you know, like that there is this broad spectrum of experience and kind of sorting through all that stuff because that was one of the things actually that that yeah that drew me into wanting to to you know cover this this topic as well I mean in my younger days you know I probably would have been the person that said you you know like a lot of like some of these articles you see oh if the world just took psychedelics you know it'd be such a better place like if everybody experienced that like you know all the problems of the world would disappear and things like yeah. that um and then you know with you know a bit of age and, and some wisdom but then also actually digging into it and kind of putting a scientific maybe um lens to it uh i spoke with a researcher in switzerland that really just you know on background just kind of digging up ideas and he mentioned how you can't even really design good placebo control studies for these kind of things because set and setting is so um important on these things and and you really you just you unblind the trial right away if you give someone a placebo and you give someone psilocybin like it's pretty obvious to everyone who got what you know like it's very difficult to design um these kind of trials and that right there just had me thinking you know yeah well what does that mean for uh studying this stuff what is that and and then seeing all of the the sort of positive articles which i think there is a lot of things to be positive about in this totally. field, right? Like there's there's clearly something going on. And even if it isn't, you know, the re it doesn't revolutionize mental health treatment, you kind of mentioned at the beginning too, there's so many things that these things can sort of give insight into, neuroscience, perception, you know, all of these different things. Um, I'm almost starting to forget where I was, where I was going with all of this because there's, well, there's so many threads to pull. <laughs> yeah, something you just said made me think. So like... I do want to say, like, I'm extremely excited about this line of research, and I'm very positive about it overall. Some, it, it, it's funny because sometimes I feel like my work is always bringing up potential problems with psychedelics, um, but I'm only doing so because I care so much about it sort right. of as, a, as a body of research. And depending on who I'm talking to, I feel like I can, let's say I'm talking to somebody who's like, what? No, those should be illegal. Like people should go to jail for doing those. They have no use whatsoever. Then I would suddenly put on like my, I don't know, Michael Pollan cap and be like, yeah. you know, I've bought copies of that book and given it out to people. I'm like, you have to read this. It's so exciting. But then when it comes to folks who are like, if only everybody did psychedelics, there'd be no more war, you know, mm -hmm. then I'm like, actually now I have to put on my like critic hat and say, this is a really complicated thing. It's so subjective. It's so unpredictable. Um, you know, we just have to be careful. It is very sensitive to set and setting, to context, to the therapeutic relationship. And all those things are really tough to study. I will say in, in terms of placebo, though, um, just spoke with a researcher who's doing a study with psilocybin and cocaine addiction, and they use 
and antihistamine as the placebo so right. that somebody does feel some physical effects. This um, sort of active very, placebo concept, yeah. Yeah, and there was a very interesting study in 2020 that I wrote about uh, where they gave people a placebo and told them that they were all taking psych a psychedelic drug. Yeah. And then several people did have hallucinations, sort of minor ones, but they saw something and they felt really weird. I spoke with one of the participants in that study and she you know, saw all these visuals very similar like you might see when you're taking a classic psychedelic. And then later she was like, oh, I took nothing. Like I just Whoops. like, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, you know, I think placebo can't be discounted and it doesn't mean that psychedelics aren't real, but it's just that set and setting is, is, is so, 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 so important. And that's why I worry about, um, you know, in the U.S., like therapy and mental health conditions that that have this sort of psychosocial element, it's really hard to get coverage for them by insurance. And so like the pill is not enough. Let's say we have, you know, here's your pill with psilocybin in it. It's, it's going to be a different way to treat depression than an SSRI where you could just go home and you take it every day. Yeah. This is something really interactive. Um, and, you know, in a sense, all medicine is interactive. They've shown, we've done, we've shown this with placebo studies that certain colors of pills seem to work better. Or, you know, if the doctor says something to you or is wearing a white jacket, certain medications seem to work better. It's just with psychedelics, it's all super enhanced. Um, and so it's one of the things I find fascinating about it is like these difficulties because they bring in so much about the human experience that's mysterious still, like placebo, nocebo, um, religious experiences, spiritual transcendent experiences that we that we don't really understand. So all of that is like packaged into this very interesting but difficult thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that was you know, the I made a, a podcast for the Undark magazine covering some of these things. And that was one of the, I, I, th I believe you interviewed Ido Hartogsen for one of your pieces as well. I spoke with him at length and it was just like so many interesting things about, you know, placebo in 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 everyday medicine that that people you you touched on a few of them there that people don't realize that like expectation and and it's this really powerful thing that we sort of kind of take for granted i think and psychedelics are are, are offering this window to kind of explore that um you know their meaning enhancement uh property you know maybe that maybe this could give us some insight into the placebo effect how it works how to sort of uh, you know, harness it in some way. Um, I spoke with David Nutt in London as well. He's at the Imperial College. And he kind of said that too. He's like, people get hung up on this idea of like, well, is it placebo or is it not? But I'm looking at it as, does it work? Do people feel yeah. better? And that's ultimately what you want to do. And so maybe we could find a way to sort of enhance placebo and you could, you know, that would get rid of a lot of drug side effects for a lot of treatments. You know, if you could sort of harness the power of the mind or, or however you want to put it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I, the, the meaning enhancer thing is, is so important too, because a story I wrote recently was about how, you know, another, we, we tend to not pay too much attention to placebo, nocebo and everyday medicine. We also really don't pay attention to metaphysics or like spiritual or religious experiences in medicine, because why, why would you, but within psychedelics suddenly we have this 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 experience that people are going to have to integrate where sometimes they have these very unusual or unexplainable transcendent experiences and then the people around them the therapists who are helping them integrate need to be really careful so as not to sort of impose their own beliefs onto them or uh, matt johnson at johns hopkins said that 
psychedelics as a treatment for various conditions should be for everybody. It shouldn't just be for some new agey kind of like hippie liberal left-leaning person anybody who wants to take this should be able to and that kind of gets back at what we were saying like even say even something like saying like if everybody took psychedelics everybody there would be no more war or everybody would be a certain kind of person that really excludes people from who might want to try this in the future for feeling like that's not really for me that you know that's for some that's for some like again yeah. like i don't know like tree hugger type person and yeah. and I, I don't I don't really think that that's if we're thinking about access and and equity as a mental health treatment for everybody it's not just liberal people who have treatment resistant depression obviously it's every you know it if it touches all sorts of people and so um, I, I think about that too set and setting and context is important just in terms of access later on like mm -hmm. how are we just designing this drug in the sense of like what it does and what it means and who it's for I think that piece is really important too. Yeah, um, I was reading that that article that you wrote uh, about that just just before we started actually, and it's you bring up like the military, the soldiers, right? Like they're not going to go for some of this stuff just in terms of their you know belief systems and culture that they're you know raised in or or operating in. Um, but it's yeah, it's it's really fascinating how some of those things will probably bleed in with that, even if you're trying to eliminate all of them, like you can't eliminate all of these things. Um, and I, I, you mentioned you spoke with uh, Thomas Metzinger, who I've watched him speak a number of times over here in Germany at the, you know, you're aware of the Mind Foundation. You, Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah I've interviewed a number of those folks and really, I, I really like what they're doing. Um, in a lot of their communications. And when I talk to them, they have this idea of we can't just, you know, we have to build a a framework to put, to balance these things on. Like you mentioned integration, which if people listening don't know that word or what it is in the context, it's like the therapist helps you to interpret is maybe the wrong word, but, you know, helps you to integrate the experiences that you had during therapy or during the psychedelic session um, so that you can draw some meaning from it. But that's, of course, going to be, you know, dependent on context and stuff like that. And the therapists can influence that rightly or wrongly. Um, but yeah, this idea that um, where, you know, what what is what is Western culture will say is framework for, for dealing with these things, because, you know, European sort of Western culture doesn't really have a relationship with these other than you know, the sort of 60s psychedelic movement. And I think you wrote that in your pieces. It's like this all like Aldous Huxley's work is basically like permeating all of this stuff. So I spoke with um, one of the, the founders of the Mind Foundation, uh, Henrik Jungerbro, once um, just sort of in passing at the at the conference. And he mentioned, you know, that there's, you know, it maybe doesn't make perfect sense to sort of grab um you know, these sort of frameworks uh, for psychedelic use from other cultures and put them and just sort of transport them into, um, you know, sort of Western European modern, modern again is, you know, I don't, don't want to be condescending, but you know what I mean? Um, society, because like, there's no relationship there. There's no context for that. And that it would probably be better serve to, you know, build our own framework. And Thomas Metzinger talks about this in this Bewusstseins culture, the, the consciousness culture and stuff like that. And so this is another area that to me is so fascinating is how do we as a society 
integrate these things. We see that laws are changing, people's attitudes are changing, but how is that going to influence, you know, the overall sort of rollout of this, if this be, does become sort of a, a movement that more people get into, you know? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I think I like, I agonize about this all the time, this like this specific topic, because so there's a lot of discussion, rightly so, about how we're going to pay homage and, and also just like literal dividends, like funnel money back into the indigenous cultures that psychedelics, modern psychedelics is borrowing from. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that that's incredibly important, especially as people really start to make a lot of money off of this in the US. Uh, but I, I totally agree that it doesn't make sense to just pick up an indigenous way of delivering these medicines and bring them to a very Western society where that doesn't, where that doesn't make sense. And, you know, the, the medicalization process has pros and cons. Um, but if we're really like, if we're thinking about this again, as like a treatment for a mental health condition, what's the set and setting and context that makes sense for that? Mm -hmm. And I think that you can support decriminalization and legalization alongside of that. They're not mutually exclusive. When we're talking about delivering it as a doctor or a therapist, like what's the setting that makes that makes sense for that? And I think we can we can borrow from practices about thinking about like what's the right container for this and how do people feel supported. But there's also you know it it what's what's the best way to do it that that makes sense within our culture? I think that our especially in the U.S. we have a very um, individualistic approach to mental health. People are used to being prescribed pills that they just take. Um, psychotherapy, as I mentioned, extremely difficult to get insurance coverage. It takes a long time. It's something that's like a process. It takes weeks and weeks a lot. You know, there's like, there's all these discussions about what's the best way to deliver mental health care and psychedelics can't just exist in a bubble outside of that. It's going to be like entering this active battleground, so to speak, where people are talking a lot right now about how many of our mental health problems are caused by uh, poverty or racism or, you know, things that let's say a person takes psilocybin for depression and then they go straight back into an environment that is not conducive for mental well-being. Will that still be helpful for them? So I think, you know, psychedelics has to, it doesn't, it's not in this, in this sense, it's not a retreat that you go away to we're trying to integrate it into all of these pre-existing forces that are already out there and around. And I think that will require different frameworks and a lot of deep thinking about how exactly that's going to work and what makes the most sense. Like, I know for me, I've been, let's say, fortunate to have uh, difficult psychedelic experiences personally. <laughs> and I say fortunate because like, though they weren't easy, I think I've, I've, I haven't had those those moments that might make me feel like this is amazing, going to be amazing for everybody because I'm just very clearly one of those people who it's not automatically amazing for. Mm -hmm. And I went to a retreat called Synthesis, um, which is in the Netherlands, where you can legally take uh, part of the psilocybin mushroom. You can eat the stems legally there. Right. Yeah. And I wrote an article about this um, that came out a couple of years ago. I wrote about my experience. And for me, one of the confusing things about being there was like, it was this weird blend of like spiritual new agey stuff, 
but then talking about neuroplasticity and like the research at Imperial College London, but then like, you know, the burning of the Palo Palos Palace, like the sticks and like the, the yeah. smudging and like big eagle wings. Like there were these very ceremonial pieces of it. And then there were also very like sciencey pieces of it. Yeah. And then ultimately I just felt I it like leaving that experience made me think like we need to be more it, it needs to be more struck like we need to figure out what it is we're doing. Like is this mm-hmm. a more ceremonial shamanistic type experience i think that's great if people want to do that mm-hmm. but i also think that for some people they really want to sit with a therapist whose sole job is to pay attention to them and guide them and be with them who has kind of like a mental health role like a more medical role and for some people that will work best too and so i just think there needs to be lots of deep thinking about like again like the context delivery it's so much more than just the the compound or like the drug itself Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. And I mean, like, there's other. To me, it makes sense. You know what is sort of happening in the a lot of the clinical trials and stuff right now, where you have this, um, you know, sort of kind of a hands off approach to you know you take you do your session and then you do your integration work afterwards. Before the session, you do some intention setting and that kind of thing. And they really do it. Is from my understanding, you know. Um, kind of keep the the spiritual element as much out of it as possible to me that makes the most sense for you know i come from canada i live in europe now for that kind of culture i feel like that's going to be broadly accessible to most people and and so that that makes a lot of sense to me um you know people can they if they want to go to you know peru and do ayahuasca those things are available you know like so it feels like there's going to be a plethora of ways in which this is um, available to people. Um, But I feel like in terms of sort of getting over the hump of all of the, um, what's the word I'm looking for, the preconceived, you know, hangups that people might have or, you know, societies might have, especially like the US and to some extent Canada, not so much where these things have been demonized for so long. Like the medical approach does does make sense. But this is another aspect of your work that I've found really, really great. Like I'm, I love that you're covering this topic because it was in my interviews, it was something that came up and I never had the chance to explore it in the piece that I did. But this idea of, you know, patents and sort of the marketing of this. Uh, and that's another thing that people don't talk about, you know, we kind of mentioned that there's, there's a lot of hype going on in this, in this field. And, you know, rightly so there's things to be excited about, but this is another aspect that people don't talk about. Um, You know, we mentioned set and setting and, you know, from the personal, from the patient side, but like from like a business side or a practical side, how is this going to, how is this going to be um, rolled out in, in turn, in, you know, the U S Canada, places like that. And I get lost in the details here. So <laughs> maybe yeah, I well, don't know I, if other people do as well, but maybe you could kind of give us the landscape of what is, you know, what does FDA approval mean? You know, I feel like there's legalization and medicalization as sort of two routes. But then within medicalization, there's like for profit, not for profit. So there's all these different sort of competing things going on. And it's all going to affect how people are able to access this. Yeah, I mean, that your last point is, is why I've been writing about this so much. You know, I'll admit, it's much more fun to write about 
Aldous Huxley and, and the influence of perennialism on modern day psychedelic therapy than it is to write about patent law. <laughs> um, but I, but I keep writing about it and I'm going to keep writing about it because, because of what you said, it, this will directly influence how psychedelic treatments are delivered depending on what happens. And so for that reason, it's so important to pay attention to it. Um, and this is a community that might not you know what? I, what I've seen a lot is people saying, uh, "Well, these 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 are compounds that just shouldn't be patented. They're natural substances. They've been used for thousands of years. They shouldn't be patented." That's that's. I think that's a fair thing to say. But also, the reality is that there are hundreds of patent applications being filed, and there are many being granted already. Mm -hmm. So this notion that these things shouldn't be patented—it's sort of a moot point right now because yeah. they are being patented. So we need to figure out what that means. If any of these patents need to be challenged or if they're not, like how is it how is it going to affect how all of this rolls out? So with with that as the backdrop, I feel like the landscape essentially is that if somebody, you know, just basically if somebody gets granted a patent for something that gives them exclusive right over it for 20 years, and what they get rights to is very specifically laid out in their in their granted patent. So those are called claims and they are usually, you know, it's like legalese. It's like very specific, difficult language to parse through. It give it basically is like this is where I can build my fence mm -hmm. and whatever's contained in my fence, nobody else can use it unless they license it for me. So Compass Pathways is a mental health company um, that has gotten a lot of attention for their patent uh, they have three granted patents right now. The first one was very contentious for a synthetic version of the psilocybin molecule, but they were granted that patent because, not because psilocybin is uh, patentable, but because the way that they make their psilocybin was patentable. So did they, sorry to interrupt you here, but the, cause that one kind of makes the most sense to me. And it's something that's done it by drug companies where you have sort of a compound a chemical compound it has a chemical structure and you sort of manipulate it slightly so it does the same thing but technically it's a different molecule so you can kind of get a patent this is kind of what we're talking about here right with psilocybin or did they did so did they patent the 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 new synthetic psilocybin molecule or the method of making it or both the method of making it okay so that would be me saying like you know when i make my sourdough bread I do it in this particular order. So I'm going to patent the, the way that I make my bread, recipe, but not the bread. Yeah. yeah. yeah the recipe. Um, and so, you know, but it, at the end of the day, it, it gives them ownership over their process of doing it. And when, you know, I, I wrote about this several years ago and at the time people weren't really worried because they said, you know, there's an endless number of ways to synthesize psilocybin. It's not really a big deal. Somebody else can make it another way. It's not, it's not a problem. Mm -hmm. But since then, um, there's been a lot more patent activity and there's been a lot more applications from Compass that seem to broaden out beyond just their very specific method of making psilocybin. So I've written about some of their patent applications that include in the, in the claims, pretty broad language, not on the methods of making synthetic psilocybin, but on the methods of delivering psychedelic therapy. So then you're talking about a recipe, but it's a, it's the recipe for therapy. And that, that starts to, you know, that started to make people feel a little more uncomfortable because that's something that feels like, well, there's not an, 
ultimate, there's not an infinite number of ways to deliver psychedelic therapy mm-hmm. in the end, the same way that there might be an infinite number of ways to develop a molecule. Um, so, you know, I think one of the main issues now is that uh, we don't really know what the patent office is going to do. So there's some concern that because psychedelics have been illegal for a long time and a lot of these practices have been happening underground, that the patent office won't be aware of all of the prior art, which is basically just like all of the knowledge that's already known out there about psychedelics. You can't patent something that's already known okay. because you're not because it's not novel. Right. So you can only patent things that are novel. So the issue with Compass's patents is not so much whether or not patents should exist in the psychedelics field, people are discussing whether or not their patents are truly novel. I would say that that's like the primary concern with with their patents specifically. And Carrie Turnbull, who's a member of um, the nonprofit, the USONA Institute's board, he started a new company or a new nonprofit called Freedom to Operate. And their entire mission is going to be challenging patents that they feel are not novel. And he specifically thinks that Compass's patents are not novel um, in the sense that using psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression is not a novel thing. Mm-hmm. It's been published about before, and so they shouldn't be able to patent it. Right. So the novelty of psychedelic patents is sort of the first layer of this cake. Underneath that is the question of are patents necessary in order to make, to, to make enough money to put these things through clinical trials? Right. And that's sort of a larger question that come like is not so easy to answer because I think that both saying that while well, biotech companies have always used patents in order to generate revenue, and so we just have to do it that way because it's always been done, I feel that that's kind of a dismissive statement because it 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 doesn't really get at the concern, which is that patents can drive up prices by reducing competition. They can give somebody sort of exclusive. Um, means to kind of like dictate what the therapy is like and who gets it and who gets licensing for it. But then people who say that, well, we just shouldn't patent anything. Like I said, that's sort of a moot point because there are patents being filed for and granted. So Mm -hmm. we have to kind of like figure out how this is going to work. So I wrote about this quite in-depthly this week, actually. This Mm -hmm. story went up this week. And it's kind of about how there might be some middle paths to explore which, you know, like some people might think this is an oxymoron, but like ethical patents or like ethical <laughs> IP. Um, so that, you know, this is like, this is like grown, like the psychedelic community really has to like, sort of like grow up, you know, I'm, I'm doing air quotes, like, and think about what it means to bring it to a mainstream market. So it might be like uh, creating an IP commons where a bunch of companies together decide they're going to share IP so they can still uh, drum up money but they're going to share it so that nobody has a monopoly. And then they could all sign something called a morals clause, which basically says like, we agree to not be terrible people and not price gouge and like, et cetera, et cetera. Um, an interesting company called Journey Collab, which is synthesizing mescaline. They have, they've created something where they said they're going to file for patents, but a certain percentage of it is going to be funneled back into indigenous communities. Mm. I think that's also a very interesting approach. So, you know, I think all of this going forward is like, I don't think we really know what's going to happen right now. I, I think that there are people who are trying to do things ethically. Um, and then, you know, there are those who are not. So we're just going to have to kind of see where all the cards fall. What I will say is that people in the community seem like they really want to be paying attention to this and not just kind of let things happen in the background. Mm-hmm. And 
until it's too late. So I'm, I'm hopeful that at least if there's ongoing discussion about this, we can reach a point in which, um, you know, the, the sort of worst case scenario is that psilocybin therapy gets approved by the FDA and then it costs three thousand uh, dollars and you can only get it at like two clinics because then what's the point? You know, what's yeah. the point? Yeah. yeah. Uh, if it becomes a boutique treatment, like then it's, you know, it's not really serving most people and then it's just sort of it just becomes another like boutique treatment that nobody can afford or have access to right and that was the the concern again bringing up the mind foundation i interviewed andrea jungabrell um co-founder of mind for the piece i did for undark and that was one of the things she talked about and not even just the patent thing but when you go for this route of medicalization sort of approval by all of the governing bodies and stuff like that it's possible that what they approve is exactly what you did in your trial, right? So right now yeah. in trials where you have to have two sort of guides, therapists, trip sitters, whatever you want to call them, um, which that increases the cost because that's, you have to pay two people's salary and therapists, you know, have a certain fee that they pay or that they collect and, and there you go. So it's like all of these factors could put it out of reach, you know, we talked about the cultural settings and the set and setting and whether it's shamanistic or not, like as one thing, but then you have these practical considerations and the, then on top of that, the patent thing. So just to kind of be clear, because I'm, I feel like an, a bit of an idiot because I've read a lot of this, <laughs> a lot of this stuff, I've read your work and it's still kind of confusing to me um, exactly how it all works. So you have a situation like, um, Oregon, for example, where right now it's technically legal, right? Like they've passed that measure 109 that says it's going to be legal to offer um, psychedelic assisted therapy. Um, so the, they, they still have to set the parameters as to what that means, who can who can do it and, and things like so all these questions that we're just talking about. But in other places, like let's say it was just made legal, like these substances are no longer um, illegal, so anybody can do them. You would have a situation like you have with uh, marijuana now, right? Like shops would spring up, buy my stuff here. You can buy my mushrooms or my psilocybin. It's the best, whatever, that kind of thing. Within that framework, within that state or wherever that place that does that, you would still then, you know, therapy would then be allowed to, to operate as well. And that would kind of be maybe a therapist or a researcher's dream because they could try any therapy they wanted they could just you know have their i'm sure there's ethical concerns on the the therapy the therapy boards and associations and all that but in this other way where we're going for medical approval so fda approval so things are still these substances are still illegal but what exactly does fda approval mean like what is that then get those those companies it just means that they can sort of offer their their treatment their method what is that yeah so i i'll say that i think one benefit to seeking fda approval is that you do have to jump all of these hoops to prove efficacy right i think that's good yeah um Agreed. especially yeah. when we're talking about sensitive populations again i think legalization I completely support decriminalization. I think legalization is sort of a separate um, right. thing. When we're talking about very sensitive groups, PTSD, treatment-resistant depression, 
I think that having people, you know, showing that it works is good. Right. I think that I think that's good. And kind of but showing that there's sort of boundaries like, you know, this would be a good way to do it with this vulnerable population and this would be a bad way to do it. That yeah. makes sense. And even and within that, the minutiae of like uh, there was this paper from Johns Hopkins recently, two papers. One uh, looked at whether you should use a weight dependent dose. And they found that it doesn't right. really make a difference. That's an interesting thing to know. I'm right. glad we know that. Another one looked at, you know, what's the difference between tonal music and like music with lyrics, I think was the, like comparing different kinds of music. So yeah, they found yeah, that yeah. the tonal music like a little better. Like, I think that's cool to know. Um, but, but to your question, FDA approval could also be limiting. And in relation to patents, there's one specific way that that concerns me, which is that um, when you get FDA approval for something, it's not just like, okay, you can use shrooms now. It's often very specific, like, like Andrea uh, referenced. So the FDA could say, okay, you've done these three, um, you know, you went through phase three clinical trials. I'm going to give you approval to use psilocybin for treatment resistant depression in, in a patient population that has tried two other uh antidepressant medications and they didn't work you know like there are these mm -hmm. it's like a it's a narrowing so like these are the people who can have access to this medication mm -hmm. if the drug was legal people might be able to use it off label right so that's off labels when you use a medication for something outside of the fda designation right. but if they remain illegal then we're getting into this tricky regulatory territory where it's like only a specific patient population has been granted the ability to use this and if a company's patent directly overlaps with what the FDA designates you can use a psychedelic drug for, suddenly a company has sort of ownership over the way the drug can legally be used in the U.S. Right. So they kind of have a monopoly on that treatment method then. Yeah. So, so the FDA often with, with tricky drugs will release something called a REMS, which mm -hmm. I might... Uh, mess up what the letters are for. It's like risk evaluation management strategy, something. It's yeah. basically a guidelines of like how you should use this drug. So let's say I form a psychedelic company and I patent the methods of psychedelic therapy for psilocybin. So I say the therapists have to do this, 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 and this, and this. And then the FDA publishes their REMS and it's exactly the same as my therapeutic manual that I patented. Suddenly, if anybody wants to do psilocybin therapy, they have to license the therapeutic process from me. Again, this is sort of like a worst case scenario, but this, these are the things that people are worried about, which is that like, if we only go the medical route, you're already going to be sort of narrowing in. And then if people have ownership over various components of that, it's going to make it very expensive and very complicated to license different things from different companies, right. which is one of the appeal of in IP commons, because then if everybody's pooling the IP together and we do get FDA approval, you can just go to one place and say, like, can I use this? And they can say yes, and they can, you know, deal with their morals clause and et cetera and all mm -hmm. that stuff. But And then multiple it's not companies a, benefit from yeah. the, the licensing fee as well. Yeah, but, you know, all of this minutia is like, it's really comp it's really complicated and already right like this isn't as fun as what we were talking about yeah, before totally. like it, you start to get a headache and like but it you know it's so important and i i've seen some discussions on social media of people um thinking of one tweet in particular saying like it shouldn't be lawyers who decide the future of psychedelic medicine and i appreciate that sentiment because i think that we need lots of different kinds of folks involved in these discussions but at the same time 
I think we need we need lawyers. <laughs> we need people who are experts in patent law. We need people like Carrie Turnbull um, who are thinking about both the legitimacy and the implications of patents because they are being filed, they are being granted, uh, and they will affect who's able to use these treatments and how and how much it costs later on down the road. So um, yeah, I just think it's like something to keep to keep talking about and just paying attention to so that things don't slip through. I'll, I'll just plug Psilocybin Alpha, which is a publication online, has a patent tracker, which is something that I that I look at pretty frequently. And so anytime a patent becomes public, um, they will publish it on their patent tracker and you can see like who's filing for what. And it's super interesting. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's like you said, maybe it's a bit it's a bit of a buzzkill to kind of <laughs> to kind of you know, go down this road. But to me, it was yeah, it's it's so important. And it's so fascinating. So when I kind of learned about um, your work, uh, I think the first story I found of yours was the um, trying to separate the psychedelic effects from the therapeutic effects and how uh, even the U.S. Department of Defense, they put out that that call for for grants because I had someone, a friend had sent me that the Defense Department. Hey, look at they're trying to do, you know, they're trying to do this with the drug. And he's kind of a bit of a paranoid guy. So he had his own views as to why they might be doing that. But uh, and then I found your work on it. And then since then, it seems like any time I, I come across an issue in this, you know, I was interviewing for this podcast I was doing and some of these issues come up and then I go to your look at your work and you're you're already on it. You're already covering it. So it's great. It's it's awesome to be able to just go here and and see that you're covering this angle, because like I said, like just like the negative aspects of it, just like all these nuances of it, it's something that I think the larger public doesn't understand. And, you know, I just look at my sort of this kind of anecdotally, I just look at my peer group, my friends back home and stuff who are not involved in in science at all you know but they feel passionately about this topic because they think it's you know they're kind of the same you know it's done nice things for them they've had good experiences that kind of thing and you know canada legalized marijuana and it feels like it's more you know it's becoming this more open society in terms of dealing with these things or talking about these things but it could get you know it could get kind of i, I don't want to say hijacked along the way but there's all of these things to think about in terms of like, how is this actually going to, to go and, and what is the best way forward first? Like I'm, I'm, I think I agree with you in terms of like, you know, go, doing clinical trials, doing the research, getting approval is the right thing to do when dealing with these kind of things. I don't, as much as I think that, you know, again, agreeing with you, people shouldn't go to jail for doing these things. I don't think it's necessarily something that you want to just drop out there and say, hey, everybody, you know, go for it. Um, I'm not sure that there's, yeah, I, I, this is kind of just my personal opinion and stuff. I feel like, yeah, maybe the harms aren't as great as what the benefits might be if you did just legalize everything. But the conversations that we have as a society around this tend to be so polarized right like it's either these things are terrible you'll fry your brain or you'll you know jump off a building because you think you can fly or something or it's going to be amazing everybody should try it and in that environment with sort of no research no data no sort of guidelines behind it it could be not great yeah i totally agree and i you know i i 
um, I spoke with Roz Watts recently, who used to be at Imperial, and now she's actually the research director at Synthesis, which is that retreat that I went to. And um, I interviewed her for that story about um, spirituality and like metaphysics when it comes to psychedelic therapy. And we talked a lot about how we are at these very early stages and we're sort of feeling like we have to choose between like, you know, are you on the side of medicalization or like, are you on the side of like indigenous use? Mm -hmm. And these sort of false binaries, you know, like I can't choose between those two things because I think they both have a place for a certain kind of person at different times in their life. And so we might get to a point in which somebody has the opportunity to pick a bunch of different paths to try psychedelics if they want to, mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, I've had depression my whole life. None of my other treatments are working for me. I want to be in a really safe container. I want to go to Johns Hopkins or wherever and like have two therapists with me and do like pretty formal like therapy integration afterwards. Or you're somebody who, you know, you're just curious. You're curious about the experience and you haven't had any really significant mental health issues and you want to do it in a more ritualistic shamanistic way and then you know you can seek that out maybe even in the u.s someday you don't have to go somewhere else and i you know i i i keep an open mind to the different paths that people can walk to to experience this if they want to but also with the recognition that again this heterogeneity like neither neither container sort of promises anything so mm -hmm. like people People can have very healing recreational experiences for their mental health. People can also have really bad experiences in, in all settings. And, um, you know, I think that's like, it's just so important to like, to see and recognize those, those risks and also the people who don't have those amazing experiences and, and what it means for them to read in, in the newspaper that somebody was cured and then for them not to be cured. Like, mm -hmm. I, I think that's plurality of approaches and also the plurality of experiences is, is so important. And I, you know, I, I feel like I'm repeating myself because I say this all the time, but um, it's just a really unpredictable subjective thing. And so we just have to do as much as possible to try to like, not eliminate the, the subjectivity, because that's impossible, but just like be aware of it. And, and that's another risk of, of patenting, right? If there's a monopoly that emerges, you sort of only get one person's take on how psychedelic therapy should be and how it should be delivered. Um, and that might not always match up with what people want or need. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's, again, like just there's so many ways, so many things to talk about here. Um, but I think it's important like to, to kind of, change the conversation uh in terms of society or whatever you know the media that, that that people are exposed to to understand just exactly that there is this heterogeneity of of experiences and that it is going to be dependent on so many things and that yes you can you know go camping with your friends and 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 do that and have a good experience but you might not have a good experience and if you don't have this sort of breakthrough during treatment that's not a reflection on you like it's there's all of these things that like we're starting to have those conversations and again this so I think your your work is great for this cuz it's it's opening up all of these uh conversations in a popular forum um that maybe we didn't have before um one of the other things that stood out to me and this kind of overlaps with the patent stuff is just you mentioned you kind of put it as like the field kind of has to grow up you know like it's 
And I like that because it's no longer like this, you know, we have this image of it still of the, as, as like the 60s, you know, sort of hippie, you know, movement or whatever. And now we're talking about patent law and clinical trials and all of these things. So I'm always curious as to like, you know, how people will make money off this. People are going to try to make money off this, right? And one of the ways is patents and they, you know, they could argue, well, we're doing it just to recoup our costs of putting it through clinical trials, things like this. But there was, um, and I'm sure you've spoke to him as well, Nicholas Langlitz. Um, I'm assuming, I think you, I think I saw him quoted in your stories, but he's another, yeah. I interviewed him as well. And he was talking about uh, companies that will, are sort of angling to be sort of the, the experts will say in setting up your, 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 your space, your psychedelic yeah. space. So let's say it gets approved as a treatment. You're a hospital, you want to, or a clinician, and you want to start offering this, but you don't know where to begin. You call these guys and they come in and they're like, well, this is what you want to do. You want to have a room that's like this, and you want to be able to offer, you know, music like this and, and things like that. And that kind of struck me as super interesting as well. And I'm just wondering if you bumped across <laughs> this idea and because I'm thinking sitting here thinking like like hilarious to me that like someone that's going to be a job of somebody to be like this is how you get the you know the best therapeutic or the best trip you know you want a beanbag over here and you know, like, you know that's the stereotype weird version of it but how do you know that like what is your data behind that have you done trials to say this room is better than this room and it, it, I know. I don't questions. think we have answers. I don't think we have answers to any of that. And like, well, it's kind of like you know that study comparing two different kinds of music at Johns Hopkins was like the first that even asked you know what's the best kind of music for people to listen mm -hmm. to. And um, you know, when I was at Synthesis, we listened to a playlist that I think came from Imperial, which is like a playlist that they play for people. And even at the time, I remember thinking like. It's really interesting, just like the song choice, <laughs> you know, like, why is it that this song getting hung like, up on the playlist and not the inner thoughts or <laughs> yeah, or you know, it opened with um, a meditation by Alan Watts, which that's fine. But also, you know, the, the, again, there's so much subjectivity where like, I have kind of a complicated relationship with Alan Watts, just personally, I really love him and his speeches and his approach on mindfulness. But also his personal life was kind of a disaster. He like abandoned his kids and like he never, you know, he was an alcoholic and like, uh, it, it, this is just like a, you know, when I was listening to that Alan Watts meditation starting us off after ingesting psilocybin, it didn't like really put me in like the best place. Right. And because I'm like, oh, here's this guy who I feel like sort of commodified mindfulness and like was a really <laughs> shitty dad. And, like, it, so all of these, I don't think that there's any way to be certain about that sort of stuff. And I, and I do understand just in response to this like company idea, why people find it exhausting, the commercialization of psychedelics, because mm -hmm. suddenly it's like, there's a price tag on everything. And one of the, you know, one of the complaints about the language and that compass patent about um, patent application about um, the methods of therapy is that it included like a room that has a sound system a room that has soft furniture in it, a therapist that like touches somebody's shoulder. Yeah. And it's like, how is this in a, in a patent application? Like, you can't a court, patent you know, behavior. Yeah. <laughs> or like maybe you can, but like, it's, 
and it, it, this is this is this interesting growing up process that we're doing, where in some sense we do have to systematize and try to understand what things work best. But when you break everything down to these really individual components, um, I think there is an open question of like, does it really matter if you have a blue couch or a red couch? Maybe it does, but maybe it doesn't. Maybe what's more important is that you um, you really feel ready, or that you know you you have you feel really safe with the person that you're with. Maybe that maybe the therapeutic relationship is actually mm -hmm. the most important thing, and that supersedes any environmental stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, but maybe not. You know, maybe not. So I think it's like we're going to see in this in this growing up process we're going to see a lot of people rushing in saying that they're experts on things that we we don't know the answers to even the eye shades you know the eye shades that people wear in clinical trials mm -hmm. and that they might wear during treatment that sort of comes from the 1950s and the studies that were done on, on psychedelic therapy back then but i don't you know there's never been a study that's like is it really let's do a randomized study where some people wear eye shades and some people don't. And just like, are the eye shades really the best way to do it? Mm -hmm. I don't know. You know, I don't know. I don't think we totally know the answer to that question yet. So all the minutiae is like, we're still figuring it out. And we're going to have a lot of people coming in saying, I know the best way to do this. Um, and I just don't think that's true yet. And so it can be exhausting to exist within this capitalistic system in which everybody wants to make a buck off of mm -hmm. anything happening with psychedelics but the, you know there are real there are real like consequences to that and and people whose experiences might be might be colored by that and you know i worry a lot about like um it's called like the guru effect right like somebody who can suddenly claim expertise and gain like a following and just make claims that are really broad and wide about what the experiences mean and what they can give to you and their promises will be like flashy and flashier than than someone else's and then suddenly you know they're making a ton of money off of just like empty promises essentially mm -hmm. those are like pretty dangerous situations so i you know it's it's gonna be it, it i think what's required for the next especially like five six seven years is just like you know, positivity and optimism, I think it's exciting, but also just like a lot of like, just like a big pause. <laughs> like whenever I read about a new company or like new something, new anything, I just like take a big pause and I'm like, okay, how do we know this? Like, how do we know what they're saying is working or what they want to do? Like, what's like the legitimacy of that? Where does it come from? Like, who, you know, who have they tried this on? Who's it for? Like, how much does it cost? Like, I think all of these sort of questions need to be at the forefront of everybody's mind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The thing that I found in my, you know, the one piece that I was able to so far make on this was how important the therapy angle is. And like, I feel like that that's kind of maybe again to like, if you wanted to play it safe, you know, that would be sort of where you would kind of rest your all of this on because, you know, we're talking about like music, couch, color, you know, all of these things. And like music is so subjective, right? Like it's everyone's yeah. going to have a different preference. You mentioned, you know, this, you know, the that person who composed that piece or that poem or, you know, whatever that that right there is going to be different for every person, you know, like so. But when it comes down to you know, sort of what the goal is, if the goal is to get people to feel better, you know, therapy has 
sort of tried and true methods. And and this was one of the things that I learned again in, in doing this piece was that therapy itself is also very subjective. And we have all of these different types of therapy. And you can't necessarily say, you know, um, this type of therapy is better than this type of therapy. It's dependent on the person. But there's like certain core features. You mentioned the therapeutic alliance, you know, that that have been shown to lead to better outcomes. So I feel like it's like everything sort of needs to be rested on that sort of foundation. And then you kind of offer, you know, like you were saying, this heterogeneity of, of options for all of the different people. And so in one sense, it's like, there's probably going to be enough money for everybody to make a buck. You know, there's going to be sort of the, maybe the more Christian centered um, offering, the more new age offering, the very sort of secular medical offering, the we offer, you can listen to death metal while you're on your trip. And we say, oh, this is probably country music is the best. I don't know, I picked two random music styles, but you know what I mean? Like it's, I feel like yeah, there's and room I think, for everything. I think that's fine. Like I, I'm, I write a lot about the medical side because, you know, that's where the research happens and that seems like it might happen first, but I totally agree that eventually you know, and then and then we'll see, like, if there are a lot of options opening up, and then it turns out that, you know, suddenly we start noticing all the people who listen to country music, like, they just like, really have bad outcomes <laughs> later on, you know, that we can intervene and like, do something about that later. But no longer allowed I, I, country music and psychedelic. Yeah, <laughs> I think that variety is, I think that variety is super important. Um, I was going to say something else about the therapeutic relationship. What was it? Oh, I read a really interesting study lately. So I have OCD. I've spent a lot of time in therapy, including something called exposure response prevention, which is basically exposure therapy. Okay. So you have like anxiety or intrusive thought, you expose yourself to it. Very scary. Over time, uh, it gets a lot better. Right. So yeah, one okay. of the really good treatment for OCD, but I, I saw a really interesting study that compared the efficacy of this kind of exposure therapy when somebody had a really good therapeutic alliance and when somebody doesn't. Basically, the efficacy of it just like disappears when you don't have that relationship with mm. the therapist. And that makes so much sense to me. And I, I was thinking about this in terms of psychedelics where like, it doesn't mean that the treatment doesn't work or that like the particulars of exposure therapy are like, nonsense that it's you know it's like oh it's just the therapeutic relationship the, the exposure therapy doesn't matter it's like the interaction of your relationship with the therapist and the therapy allows you to do the do the therapy because of the relationship and it's like this feedback right, loop and right. the feedback loop. and when i read that i thought about i was thinking about psychedelic therapy because uh you know in my experience I think I really would have benefited from having one-on-one -on -one attention from somebody. I wrote about this in my story. Like there were, there were only like two therapists, there were four guides. Two of them were therapists when I was there for like 12 people when I was at this retreat. Mm -hmm. And when I was in it and I was having a hard time, I really could have used somebody who just like could be with me the whole time. And it would have even been better. Like if it was my therapist that was there. Right. And I, again, I think that that piece of it is like, it's like this interactive element of you're able to sort of have the experience, even if it's difficult, because you have this relationship with somebody that you trust who's supporting you. And then it's like this back and forth thing and it, it bolsters the treatment itself. So I, I'm with you that I think the therapy piece of it is so, so, so important. And we can be distracted from it sometimes, I think, because of all of the um, very flashy 
side effects of psychedelic drugs, which is like, you know, the hallucinations and you see things and you feel things. And it's like a lot of stuff happens because of the molecules, but there's, you know, you're in this container of the therapy itself. And I think that that piece of it is so important. And that could come from a therapist or like we were saying in this variety of experiences, it could come from your religious leader or it could come, you know, from a friend, like in a recreational setting. But I think that relational piece of it is one that we shouldn't lose sight of. Mm -hmm. um, which, by the way, is very present in all of the clinical trials that have existed so far. Mm -hmm. Like Roz Watts, again, for example, who is one of the, the lead therapists at the Imperial Trials on Depression, um, you know, she was very involved with her patients. I've heard this from others too, right? Like, it's not just you go to a clinical trial at a college, they give you psilocybin, you're cured of depression, and you walk out. You have lots of sessions with people. This happens at Johns Hopkins too, where people really, they connect mm -hmm. with with researchers and then they have the experience so that connection i think cannot be forgotten or, or left behind yeah do you think it's like it's it's like a like a like a safety like you feel safe enough to sort of and i'm just talking about the therapeutic alliance here psychedelics or exposure therapy or whatever um i don't have any experience with therapy but so i'm curious like is it maybe this is too simplistic but it sound is it just like the safety you feel like you have a safety net because you trust that person there. So you're able to sort of let yourself go through, whether it's the psychedelic experience or whatever therapy it is. Um, is that kind of it? Like I'm trying to think of like a metaphor or whatever, but maybe like, you know, if you have a tense muscle, you can't do the exercise. So you have to relax first and then you could do the exercise that's actually healing for the problem. Um, I'm not sure where I got cut off there, but I guess I was, yeah, you were talking about, is it like the feeling of safety in the therapeutic? Yeah. Sorry. I, I When I do these things, I I always ramble. My questions okay. are always very <laughs> rambling and stuff. But um, so I'm, yeah, if that made sense, um, I wonder if that's it. And because, you know, as that would make sense to me that you need that safety net in order to go through something that may be difficult. And that if you didn't have that safety net, you wouldn't sort of, I guess, fully commit to it or let yourself be exposed to the the whatever it is that's the healing aspect of whatever therapy it is that you're doing yeah that yeah. resonates with me and again just to always emphasize the variability um i've spoken to lots of guides and therapists who say that some people you know they just lay down and they put the eye shades on and they don't need you the whole time uh mm -hmm. they you know that they just go forth and 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 do their thing. Some people do start to experience distress and having somebody there just to hold your hand or just sit with you is incredibly powerful in that state. And I think it is a safety thing. Um, I'll just extend your metaphor of the safety net. Like, are you gonna go, like if you're going cliff jumping or something, are you gonna jump if there's not a net? Probably not. Like, are you gonna jump if you know there is a net that's there to catch you? Like you probably will. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, with exposure therapy, just uh, to use that as a metaphor, I definitely know that um, the first time that I tried it was with a therapist that I didn't know is in a clinical trial for OCD. And I didn't know him very well. We tried to do these hard exposures and I just dropped out of the trial because it was way too hard mm -hmm. for me. Then when I tried it again, like a couple of years later with somebody I really had a relationship with, um, stuck with it, you know, and it worked great. So like just anecdotally, I feel it's, it is. It does almost feel like too simple. Like, oh, you just feel safe. And like, there's somebody that you like that's there with you who you feel has your back. And so you can do hard things. Mm -hmm. um, but that simplicity, you know, there's a lot in there, actually, like packaged within that simplicity, right? Like, 
what does it mean to have a relationship with somebody to have that connection, the relational component to it? So much of so much of all therapy is like that. So we shouldn't expect psychedelic therapy really to to be any any different um, to to be devoid of that somehow because there's a really powerful drug involved. If anything, I think it it makes it more important. Hmm. I mean, just in life in general, you know, yeah. relationships with people are so important. It's, and again, this is maybe kind of comes back to some of the things we talked about at the very, very beginning with science and some of these topics and stuff that if you, you know, sort of remove the personal aspect, if you remove kind of the human angle, it's like, well, what is, what good does that really do us? Right. Because all of these things, all of these discoveries or treatments or therapies or you know, whatever it is, it takes place in people's lives in the context of all of our lives. So you kind of have to have that, that sort of perspective on it, I guess. Um, yeah. Um, I think, you have to leave in a little bit. I have to go in a little bit. We can kind of start wrapping it up. There's a lot of things that I would love to keep speaking with you about. It seems like we've kind of um, interviewed a few of the same people and which is, yeah, I would love to just like sit down and talk. I, I haven't got a chance to talk with uh, Thomas Metzinger myself, but he's always someone that I feel like is filled with just like, he says these things and you're just like, Oh, wow. That's so what that makes a lot of sense. He seems like a really clear minded guy. So even podcast or not, it would be great to pick your brain about some of these things. But um, is there anything uh, like sort of upcoming that you wanted to you know, draw attention to other topics that you're you're that are on the horizon for you? Or is there an area that you're like, hey, this is something that I haven't explored, but I'm really interested in in getting into? Um, well, I would say in general, like so I mentioned I don't know if we were recording it, but I'm working on a story now about the modern stoicism movement, which is mm -hmm, the incredibly mm -hmm. popular uh, movement, which derives wisdom from people like Seneca and Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus, uh, but sort of boils it down to like practical guides to living. And this is interesting. Again, this is the kind of thing where it's like, what does this have to do with psychedelics? But to me, they're connected in the sense that I'm very interested in how um, like interdisciplinary things can emerge. So with, with, with modern stoicism, I see it a lot as like people using it as a mental health tool. And actually the creators of CBT, one of them being Aaron Beck, their inspiration for CBT was stoicism. And that, right. that connection isn't really like, it's talked a lot about now, but it hasn't been previously, but there's this issue of like people using stoicism as like their mental health treatment. It's like uh, a movement that is uh, draws a lot of men to it. And it, you know, how it, I think uh, I'm rambling, but it's like the intersection of like philosophy, mental health, like how people make meaning and how that influences their experience in relation to others is, is, is what connects all of the topics that I'm interested in, whether it's like stoicism, psychedelics, or like other areas of psychology. Um, and so I think what I really want to work towards going forward is like that interdisciplinary nature of, of various topics. I, I'm really excited about um, 
the intersection of philosophy and psychiatry. There's a new journal mm-hmm. that just launched that's just about this topic. Um, uh, a, a source and internet friend of mine, Oais Oftab, is a psychiatrist who's very interested in like bringing philosophy into our questions about like what is a diagnosis. Like, what does it mean to have a word like depression uh, define your experience? Or like, um, you know, what does it mean when somebody, uh, you know, has like an ecstatic experience and then, they, and then they become better? Like, what is that? How does that shape our understanding of the brain or like what mental illness is in the first place? And, and how can we use that to, to help everybody feel just like a little bit better? Um, you know, the, inter- mm-hmm. the intersections of what people experience out in the world and how it influences their mind. All, all these sort of like overlaps are things that I'm, I'm constantly thinking about and want to keep writing about going forward. So that's sort of like vague and existential. But <laughs> I, I would say that, I, you know, I, I am very like, I don't think that existential questions are sort of like, just for fun, or like, just to like, talk about late at night. I think they really are at the core of most of what we are dealing with when we talk about mental health specifically and what it means to have meaning, um, you know, what it means to, to make meaning in a life when it comes to your work or your relationships or, or anything like that. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's a topic that like, you know, you mentioned stoicism draws a lot of males to it. It mean, I've, I see the topic a lot in terms of meaning in your life and, and things like this. And it, and, you know, people talk about like, the mental health crisis that sort of Western societies are facing right now. And, you know, I've read a lot about it in terms of, yeah, that there is, you know, sort of a lack of meaning, a lack of purpose. Um, and that kind of, as a, as a male mid thirties, you know, the, the sort of demographic that is experiencing some of these problems, it even resonates with me, even as someone that who, you know, doesn't thankfully, you know, suffer from, a lack of meaning or mental health issues or something. I even see that pull and it makes sense, but it's another one of those things that I'm like, can you just replace, you you can't just replace therapy with philosophy, right? But there's obviously this intersection there. Yeah. Um, and I'm just kind of thinking off the top of my head now based on what you said, but that's really fascinating um, and it makes sense. And yeah, I, I tried to read Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. I think I got, you know, not very far and then I got kind of bored. So yeah, well, it's... <laughs> but I'll be curious to see what your what your piece is, because, yeah, it feels like that sort of, you know, it's like a search for meaning. And, and you see, right. it so, like, I'm also very interested in I used to write about this more like wellness Um like on Instagram, there's so many Instagram therapists. The whole culture of wellness. Now, and stuff. so many people reach for the language of psychology to describe their emotions, and I think I think that's good sometimes. But also, you know, it's it's very interesting. I was looking at like this page of um, a very famous like million follower Instagram therapist, and so much of it is like very Freudian. It's like inner child's work and like, you know, all about like attachment theory and families and like uh, trauma. And like, um, it's just, it's just very interesting to me, the ways in which people are, are seeking to find meaning, but also to explain and describe their experiences, because I think it's very specific to this era and this time period. Uh, And it's not always obvious why certain things like blow up and other things don't, right? Like why, why stoicism and not like, you know, there's no modern Epicurean movement. 
right? There's not, there's not even like a modern Aristotelian movement, not really, not in the way that there is a, a modern Stoicism movement. So to me, there's some nugget there of like, why is it, why is it this philosophy that people in 2021 in a Western culture, why is it mm -hmm. that thing that's helping them make meaning and, and deal with their, their emotions in some way? And that's good if it's helping them, but then also is there a reason they're being so easily drawn to that, right? Like some, mm -hmm. some interpretations of stoicism can be quite overly emotionally regulative or individualistic. So like, maybe that makes sense yeah. that people are turning to that. So, you know, I think it's, um, it's always worth asking deeper questions about why those things are there and why, why they're yeah. so popular. Yeah. Yeah, what about this day and age? What about this environment that allows that seed to grow versus another? And and I I think about it as, you know, I'm always worried about in terms of like wellness and and this kind of stuff the charlatans, right? Like who's taking advantage of that and how you know, throwing this language around and throwing these things around that you can say, "Oh, well, this is like, you know, philosophical truth or whatever." Like this is what yeah. the ancient people have said. So this is, you know, it's well, is it does that make it relevant for now? Maybe, but yeah. not, not necessarily, you know? So and there's, that's really, yeah. the whole wellness thing is is fascinating to me. Right. Well, there's a big difference between self-care and the commodification of self-care. Just like there's a big difference between like mindfulness, say, which is a tool that I'm very fond of, and the commodification of mindfulness. Mm -hmm. um, and so just like there's a big difference between like, one could argue like psychedelics and the commodification of psychedelics like you lose something when it becomes commodified and it's not only money i think um so you know it's a it's a very complex environment to try to be well in that we've found ourselves in today yeah. like it you know it's just so complicated even to do to do anything to like try pick up yoga to try meditation like just, you're just like entering this field in which there are a lot of really genuine people and tools that could help your life. And then there are also a lot of people who are just simplifying things to make money or, um, you know, promoting, promoting again, like, you know, like the way big companies roll out like mindfulness initiatives, but then like, don't increase people's pay or help like not have yeah. people work overtime. It's like, we have to remember that like sometimes the problems are all around us. They're not inside of us, um, which I think the wellness trend doesn't do a great job of addressing all the time. That's a good point. That's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. Lots to talk about. I look forward to, uh, to following your work and, and seeing what you, what you come up with on this. Um, well, let's, let's wrap it up here. Um, can people follow? Where do they find your work? Um, if you want to shout out some social media or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So the best way to follow my work is on, through Twitter. So my my Twitter handle is Shayla two underscores love because somebody beat me to Shayla underscore love. <laughs> um, it's tough having a last name that's a noun because lots of people uh, jump on those yeah. handles. So there's two underscores, but it's pretty easy just to do a search and to find it. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, always interested in connecting about philosophy or neuroscience, psychology, anything with psychedelics, any sort of existential questions. I always love to chat about those. Excellent. Awesome. Well, Shayla, thank you again for taking the time out of your day to, to speak with me. I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. 
I hope we can do it again. Uh, if you're in Germany, when traveling is allowed, reporting on psychedelics or anything else, you know, drop me a line. Maybe we can meet in person. That would be great. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for this. It's been it's been really great talking to you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. There you go. There you have it. Once again, I cannot thank Shayla enough for coming on and sharing her insights, her reporting into this very interesting and important angle uh, on the psychedelic movement. Um, I hope we do it again. As you can see from the end there, there was lots more that we could cover. So please do follow all of her writing. Check out her writing at vice.com and follow her on Twitter at Shayla two underscores love that's at shayla two underscores love follow us at two brad for you on instagram and twitter send us an email to brad for you at gmail.com or leave us a voice message at speakpipe.com slash two brad for you we'd love to hear from you we'll play that stuff on the show until next time thank you so so much for being here thanks for listening see you later